Check out Unpacking Israeli History podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, the podcast. You're on episode four of it. You're on episode four of it. I'm your host, (laughs) Margaret Kiljoy. My guest is Katie, and the producer is Sophie, and the audio engineer is Daniel, and On Woman wrote the theme song. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? So good. It's been so many minutes since we last chatted. I know. Just absolute minutes of break where we talked about tea. (laughs) We did. I know. It was nice. So... Everything in is in is, is in it's is uh, Margaret knows how to speak. Margaret <laughs> in place. Everything good. Everything is all happening. Yeah. Except everything's all fucked up. Much like my last attempt to say a sentence, because the Easter Rising is about to happen, but it's about to happen in a really messy way instead of a nice easy way. I mean, they absolutely still would have lost, but it would have been really interesting. So, some cowards in leadership fucked the whole thing up. And people driving at night without headlights fucked the whole thing up. (laughs) Uh, When in doubt, wear headlights, wear headlights, use headlights. People are still going to go. Much like I'm going to keep, I'm just as brave as they are because I'm continuing to talk. Yeah, persevere. Yeah. Because of all the fuckery and confusion caused by having a coward who thought he was in charge, only 1,200 folks mustered on Monday morning in Dublin at this place called Liberty Hall. Yeah. There's not enough to overthrow our government. No. I mean... I guess it depends on what you do with the 1,200 people, but this didn't work. Well, whatever. They meet at this place called Liberty Hall, which is incidentally the first place that the Irish flag was flown publicly. Again, I distrust any history that says first time. Mm. Six days earlier, a 16-year-old girl flew the all-green flag, all-green with Irish Republic painted in gold on both sides. There were a bunch of flags that flew during the Rising, uh, including that green one. Also, the Irish tricolor, the one that we have now, where green represents the Catholics, orange represents the Protestants, and white represents a lasting truce between the two. This flag actually has been around since 1848. It was designed by French women who were sympathetic to Irish nationalism, 
because the Irish were all about the French Revolution, right? Everyone who wanted to not have a monarch anymore was like, yeah, the French Revolution, that seems pretty fucking cool, am I right? <laughs> yeah. And so some French women were like, all right, we'll do it to your specs. And they were like, yeah, we want like unity between the Protestants and the Catholics, um, which is fucking cool. And during the Easter Rising, that's when it became the flag of the Irish Republic. They flew both of those flags. They also flew the starry plow I talked about last time. And then Mm -hmm. also the harp on the green flag, which uh, is a way older um, Irish flag. Lots of flag options. Yes. Ireland has had a lot of uprisings, so it has a lot of options available to it. 1,200 people muster. The Irish volunteers, the Irish citizen army, and the Kuminavan, the all-women's unit. And, of course, there was also women in the Irish citizen army. About 300 women participated in the rising, I've read, but I'm unsure that if this is of the original 1,200 or if this includes the people who joined later in the week. Overall, the women in the citizen army were trained to fight. Those in Kuminavan were there as auxiliaries to like cook and record things and run messages and all of that. Okay. But to be honest, I'm starting to doubt that this is as clear cut as most people represent it. Because it usually isn't. Yeah. Like there's this one story of like the the secretary who shows up with a portable typewriter and a handgun. And a lot of people, I think sometimes like if there was a woman, they were like, oh, they were in Kuminavan instead of it being like, no, they were separate. They were with the citizen right. army. But then whatever. It's not as clear cut as anyone is presenting it. Armed with Mauser rifles, shotguns, revolvers, and the occasional semi-auto pistol. Um, with about They actually had enough guns for people at the beginning because they didn't have nearly as, as enough people, right? <laughs> yeah. So they kind of had, they had enough right. guns. Yeah. They fanned out through the city center and took key positions, barricading themselves into buildings and barricading the streets. There's like one scene early on where the countess and a hundred other people are just digging up the streets to build barricades. That's my girl. I know. I know. Towering over everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, James Connolly's son, Roderick, was there with his father. He was only 15 years old. His daughter, Nora, was there too. She was the one who was like, yo, are we doing this? You know? But she was there at the very beginning, but then she was sent up north to rally more women to come down uh, from the north of the country. And they only made it back in, after the later surrender, six days later. Mm. Yeah, it takes time to go travel back then, too. I know. And then they, like, ran into problems of having to circumvent. Of course they did. They had adventures. Yeah. Uh, 400 rebels took the post office, the GPO, as their headquarters for the rising. And then Pierce stood outside and proclaimed the Irish Republic, which is fucking cool. They passed out their proclamation throughout the city, which was printed by a woman typesetter. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's some... Pretty sick parts of it. Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. We declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens, cherishing all the children of the nation equally and oblivious to the differences carefully fostered by an alien government, which have divided a minority from the majority in the past. Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. The fact that they came out the gate being Mm -hmm. like, this isn't a weird Catholic versus Protestant thing. Mm -hmm. That divide was given to us by our colonial masters. Mm -hmm. They also pioneered Irish radio, the first ever radio broadcast in Ireland 
was them using Morse code to announce the Irish Republic because all the like phone lines and shit were cut, you know? Mm. And it was sent out in Morse code and it involves someone climbing up to a radio, climbing up a radio antenna in the middle of this thing with like there's snipers everywhere to fix the radio antenna to, to broadcast this. They could have taken Dublin Castle, but they didn't know that they could have taken Dublin Castle. They like showed up and shot the cop who was hanging outside and then they didn't press too far in because they were like, oh, fuck, we think it's full of soldiers. There were barely any soldiers there, and they absolutely Damn. could have taken it. Lots of armchair generals in the intervening century have suggested that they should have done this or that strategically. But okay. overall, it probably would have been better if they'd taken Dublin yeah. Castle. Some of the rebels were sick and or disabled. One person, that guy with tuberculosis, Plunkett, had like an open wound on his neck from his illness Oof. and was probably about to die. Yeah. Was he out there spreading it around? It is contagious. Yeah, yeah. But people don't really understand that super no, well. No, they don't. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway. I was going with bravery here, but now I do have to think about it from that point of view. Just, yeah. You know, it's hard to forget the last few years we just lived through, so. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Uh, there's another, another one of the rebels, at least one more, I think maybe more than another, who shows up to the general muster is so sick or like disabled in a way where he can't necessarily walk quickly. So he lets the rest of the group move ahead while he slowly made his way to his position. And I'm including mm. these just because I think that disability is not always included. When Absolutely. It's important. And it is brave. Yeah. It is very brave to come out in when you don't have the same mobility when you, yeah. Right. And it's just like, yeah, people have this, oh, these good, strong men. And I'm like, this is a, mm-hmm. uh, bunch of weirdos who got together yeah. to do this thing you know yeah. and the first person to die in the rising was a civilian a woman named margaret Kioch. a rebel named dan mccarthy had just been shot and she was a nurse and she's in full nurse's uniform and she's like well i'm clearly a civilian i'm in full right. nurse's uniform so she runs to go save him and the british are like yeah we don't care and they shoot her and they kill her wow uh the first fighter killed was a rebel and he was an actor in the Citizen Army. His name was Sean Connolly. And he led the takeover of City Hall. He was on the roof readying to raise the Irish flag when a sniper took him down. And that's the kind of thing that's like so narrative that it feels a little convenient. But there is an eyewitness mm-hmm. who testifies okay. to this. I've also read that the cop outside the palace was the first person to die in the rising. And I don't know how I, everyone knows how I feel about firsts. Per, yeah, it's almost yeah. impossible to. Uh... Yeah. Someone probably that. knows, but I have read multiple things that contradict each other, and I'm not writing dissertation. The rebels didn't get nearly as many positions as they would have liked because the don't show up lads order had happened, you know, and an awful lot of people were at home unsure what they were supposed to be doing. The chief medical officer of the Rising was a woman named Dr. Kathleen Lynn, who had spent this past several years teaching combat medicine to the rebels. And she's at the general post office and is like not just is coordinating care and providing care. Despite the low turnout of rebels, the British forces were caught off guard. And whenever soldiers tried to investigate, they uh, got shot, you know. And so at one point, the first day, there's all of these different stories about the countess and what she got up to. Right. There's this version where she shot a cop. But then there's another version where she later says, I put my gun into his belly, but I knew him. So I couldn't pull the trigger. Mm. And then there's another version that was at one point, there's an eyewitness of this one. They're like trying to hold this place in the streets and all these soldiers come running around the corner 
And so she shoulders her pistol. They use these these Mausers, these long-barreled pistols, where the holster could become a shoulder stock. They're kind of like cool. Oh. They get called broom handle guns. Anyway, she shoulders her pistol, one of the like three pistols she brought with her. There's a benefit to being the rich lady in the war. Yeah. Although all with different, whatever, I'm not going to get into gun nerd stuff. Anyway, (laughs) she shoots at or shoots a small squadron of soldiers and sends them off running and possibly shot two of them. But looting breaks out across the city once all this starts happening because starving people are like, you know, it'd be pretty cool if we had that stuff that we can now have because the police are busy. Right. And they were really classy about it. Women were like stealing fancy dresses and jewelry and then like parading around in the streets. Being like, oh, <laughs> oh, 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 you know, <laughs> and cops tried to stop them, but the looters drove them off by the classic method of shooting at the police. Yeah. And, and then they scattered. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone is like, like a lot of historians, including leftists or whatever, they're like, oh, no, there was looting as if this was like, like there was like fires in the city and that's bad. Right. But. I'm convinced the looters were another column in the struggle as the uncontrollables. Yeah. We're just so in, out there, so in chaos, making it yeah. harder for the, you know, everyone to respond to the rebellion. It's good. Yeah. It's good, actually, you see. Yeah. And the British government declared martial law the next day, uh, which I'm surprised it took them that long, honestly. Yeah. Get your shit together. Some of the rebellion was hindered by outright misogyny from the rebels. There's this guy, mm. D. Valera, who we'll talk more about him later, but he actually goes on to be the like one of the longest serving politicians in Irish history. Uh, of course he does. I know. Um, and he just like, there's like a bunch of women who are ready to fight and they're like, what do we do? And he's like, I'm not giving orders to women. And then leaves. Dumb, dumb. Yeah, fuck him. Although it's funny because he's on the, oh God, Irish politics so complicated. It's messy. It's messy. He's on the, the right side of the Civil War or the wrong side of the Civil War, depending on whatever. So- Meanwhile, in Galway, on the other side of the country, on the west coast of Ireland, uh, in the Galtacht, the part that is still Irish-speaking, had never been fully colonized or anglicized, 500 volunteers show up armed with, like, fuck all. They did not get the rifles. And they're trying to do a rising of their own with, like, shotguns and pistols and nothing. But they've been even more fucked by the stand-down order because the actually-just-kidding-please-rise order had a harder time reaching them. Yeah. Their commander had been sent over from Dublin, and he was like, this rising is about kicking the English out. But the rank and file of the Galway rising, these are like rural poor as far as I can tell overall. And this is the side that my my uncle fought in, or like Mm -hmm. several of my uncles fought in. They were pretty convinced that it was about land distribution. They were like, no, the problem is landlords, and I guess that's attached to England, you know? And so they were like, they wanted to also, in addition to targeting like British colonial outposts, they were like, we're going to target the largest states and the landlords, including ostensible nationalists, because the whole point of this is to be free, mm-hmm. you know? But they barely had any rifles. They managed to blow up a bridge, capture some officers and get into one gunfight. But pretty soon they dispersed and then a lot of them got arrested. And at some point along the way, my uncle got shot in the leg or he got shot in one of the later wars and my family was wrong when they told him he was shot in the rising because I don't know. When they told him, did he not know? So I got told, when I met him, he was 100 years old and he wasn't oh, incredibly I see. communicative. I got told by the Irish family that he had been shot in the rising. Okay. But that was like filtered through some people who might yep, not have yep. known the difference between that. 
the rising and the war of independence and the civil war that like nerds like me know about. And know? he's 100 years old and not yeah. necessarily. I get I gotcha. Yeah, totally. The fighting in Dublin back in now we're back over the East mm -hmm. Coast. I just had to include Galway because of my family and because also because it gets left out. Yeah. And there's actually a bunch of other places that the rising happened. I love Galway. I know. It's the only place in Ireland I've actually been, but magical. The fighting in Dublin went on for six days, but the rebels didn't take the railways and thousands of reinforcements from England flooded in over the rails. Mm. 16,000 soldiers or 20,000, depending on what you read. Some of them were fresh from the Western Front of World War I. Since they're World War I soldiers, they do what World War I soldiers do. They just fucking shelled everything. Yeah. Just bring in artillery. There is no problem that a grenade or a mortar round won't yeah. fix. And they outnumbered the rebels about 10 to 1, maybe more. It's not good numbers. No. Connolly and the other leaders, they had miscalculated. They'd assumed that the English wouldn't want to destroy their own city. Dublin was like the second city of the empire, you know? Yeah. At the end of it, they underestimated the British crown's appetite for destruction. Yeah, yeah. Colonial forces, like, whatever. We'll just make you poor people build it for us again. Right. Like, we don't live there. We don't care. Yeah, exactly. In the post office, the headquarters, there's this woman there who is feeding everyone, and her name was Nellie Gifford, and she's fucking cool. She's a socialist. She's a friend of the countess. She'd showed up armed and ready to fight, but she noticed that no one had taken care of the food. So she used her gun in the old-fashioned way to procure food for everyone. She waylaid food transport vans oh. and got them to donate to the cause. Very cool. Yeah. And then she cooked it for everyone, and then she went around to shopkeepers to convince them to donate as well. And I think it's a mix of robbed and convinced. You I'm know? like, convinced how? Wielding her gun. I feel like Picking both. things up saying, you want to donate, don't you? I know you do. Yeah, you care about the cause. Strong-armed them. <laughs> sure are some nice windows in here. I hate to see yeah. them broken. Yeah, shame for them to get blown out. Yeah. But one of the things that actually people argue a lot about is how popular the Easter Rising was or wasn't at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, the primary narrative is that it was not popular and that the average Irish person supported home rule kind of, but was loyal and wanted the war to be won and wanted nothing to do with any of this. However, there's a lot of counter arguments to that and primarily from the working class and the poor. People were like, no, we're actually into this. And so there was a lot of support as well. So I think what it was is people were divided. Yeah. And one of the reasons that uh, Nellie Gifford is so interesting to me is that, so she single-handedly keeps morale up at the post office because they're eating well for a while, right? And it's easy as a feminist to be like, hey, women didn't just cook, they fought. But it's also important, like, we are joining the patriarchy and undervaluing traditional women's roles like cooking and caring yeah. for the wounded if we don't hold that as equal. Thank you. I think it's so important. Yeah. Uh, that's to me, is completely undermining the whole idea of feminism to me. Yeah. It's like, it's not that those roles are not important. They're vital. Yeah, exactly. It's respected as equally important because it yeah. is. Yeah. And Nellie fucking rules was ready for whatever needed doing. If what needed doing was shooting, she was there to shoot. But what she realized what needed doing was feeding people. She was there yeah. to feed. 
And she was an actress in her mid-30s. She was fiercely Protestant. Okay. All her brothers, it's like whenever you see this, like all her brothers did this, all her sisters did this. She had like three or four of each, I think. Yeah. Different time, different place. All her brothers had stayed loyal to the crown, but all of her sisters were revolutionaries. Yeah. All of her sisters except her eventually converted to Catholicism in order to marry Catholics who were in the revolutionary ranks. Mm -hmm. And she was like, no, I'm good as a Protestant. and just stayed Protestant. She lived to be fucking 90. She spent the rest of her life fighting for the rights of prisoners and looking after stray cats and dogs. Man, she sounds incredible. Yeah. She sounds like my kind of people. I know. I know. And so the rising, it is not going well. The British just massacred civilians. They just would blow up buildings and shit. No, like, you better get out of here. Slowly, the British took rebel positions one after the other. However, at Mount Street Bridge, 17 rebels held back more than 1,000 British soldiers and in the process shot 240 (laughs) of the British soldiers. Whoa. Only four of the 17 rebels who held this bridge died. Wow. And that group of 17 inflicted two-thirds of the casualties that the British took for the entire week. All right. Those are some impressive numbers right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Well done, lads. Well done. Yeah. And what's funny is, like, I've also read analyses that was, like, if the British hadn't had actually cared about shit, the higher-ups, they would have just taken a different bridge to get where they were going. Yeah. But, it was, but the leaders don't care. They're like, well, just keep sending dudes until we win. We'll wear them down. Yeah, we outnumber them 10 to 1. Why do we care what happens to nine of our 10 guys, you know? Mm-hmm. One of the founders, well, actually, before we tell you about one of the founders, the British volunteer, I would like to tell you about the foundations of our society, which is people using media to mm-hmm. sell stuff. Mm, such an important point, Margaret. Really good. Yeah. 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 Um, I definitely would love to learn more about that. Oh, you're in luck. Here they are. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated, 
we're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. We're back. Okay, so one of the founders of the Irish Volunteers was this guy who was named The Overhilly. And... What kind of badass do you have to be for your name to be the instead of Michael? Like he was born Michael, but he was like, I am the. And this was part of his de-anglicization because the head of a clan was called the. Mm. Like, oh, which O'Rahili do you mean? Oh, I mean the O'Rahili. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he's interesting to me. He was director of arms for the volunteers and he had overseen a lot of the military training. But he'd also been completely against the rising. He had been part of the tell people not to rise plan. But when he found out it was going to happen anyway, he was like, and he said, and again, they don't miss with their quotes, at least poetically, they don't miss with their quotes. He said, it is madness, but it is glorious madness. All right. He's ready to go. So he joins in. Yeah. He or his friends set his own car on fire in the street at a barricade at one point. He like brings his car. He's like, I think he's kind of rich. He like shows up and he like has his car and they use it for a bunch of stuff. And then they're like, all right, we're done with the car. Set it on fire in the street now. Yeah. And like none of these people think they're going to survive. I think this is the guy who like he like shakes Connolly's hand and is like, all right, I'll see you later. And James Connolly looks at him because I'm never going to see you again. Yeah. (laughs) That happened with someone. And I think it was the O'Reilly. I'll see you in hell, motherfucker. Yeah, like, but, but you know, as, as equals, right? You know, we're both going to yeah. go do it. Yeah. See you um, in heaven, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and on Friday, the O'Rahili leads a charge through the street and he's gunned down. And then he survives for like 21 hours, bleeding to death in a doorway. Mm. He writes a letter to his wife while he is bleeding to death in a doorway. And it's, I'm going to just quote the whole thing. It's not very long. Written after I was shot. Darling Nancy, I was shot leading a rush up Moore Street and took refuge in a doorway. While I was there, I heard the men pointing out where I was and made a bolt for the laneway I am in now. I got more one bullet, I think. Tons and tons of love, dearie, to you and the boys and to Nell and Anna. It was a good fight anyhow. Please deliver this to Nanny O'Rahili, 40 Herbert Park, Dublin. Goodbye, darling. Wow. It was a good fight anyhow. Yeah. 
it's kind of sweet, you know? It is very sweet. And here's to just sometimes letting yourself be won over by glorious madness. If all your friends are jumping off a bridge, sometimes there's a reason. Well, I also think acknowledging that these opportunities don't come very often, once in a generation, as has been established. And this is the thing that you're working towards and acknowledging that it's not an ideal situation, but are you going to live the rest of your life thinking I should have gone out there and died with everyone else, you know? Right. Of these characters we've laid out, I think most of them would not uh, be living a life they want to live if they never didn't make that choice to join when push comes to shove. Absolutely. Uh, and there's actually going to be a, there'll be some quotes later basically to that effect. Yeah. So Connolly at the general post office, he's the, you know, sort of military commander of it all. I mean, Pierce is also one of the commanders, right? He gets shot at least twice in the process of all of this. I've read a few accounts. Um, most likely he got shot first in the shoulder while doing some shit at a barricade, but he kept, keeps going. Later, he takes a bullet to the ankle and it goes really wow. bad. It goes really badly. He is unable to stand and he slowly starts dying. And the way it gets presented, they're like, he led from a lying down position for days. That's one version. Uh, When I read versions that more actively and intentionally focus on the women who are involved in the rising and are less on the like great man of history page. Yeah. He was laying around in a stretcher and he was doing what he could and command fell to the second in command, Dr. Kathleen Lynn, the head of all the medical stuff. She was overseeing the headquarters of the rebellion at the end. Wow. On Saturday, the rebels surrendered unconditionally because they were losing badly. And primarily they surrendered, as far as I understand, because the British kept fucking killing civilians. They thought that the British wouldn't just massacre civilians Hmm. because they overestimated the ethics of their enemy. But I've read unconditional surrender. And I've also read that Patrick Pierce negotiated, you can kill those of us who signed the proclamation, but not everyone else. Yeah. One woman from the Kumanavan, uh, Elizabeth O'Farrell, had the unfortunate honor of delivering the order to surrender to all the other positions because there's no way of communicating, right? So they had to bring her with a white flag and be like, hey, it's true, we gave up. A lot of the volunteers didn't want to give up, but eventually... Everyone surrendered. Yeah. As the volunteers surrendered, the working class of Dublin gave them, as one Canadian reporter referred to it, an ovation. Soldiers would like have to go into the crowd to push and like shut people up as everyone cheered on the rebels as they were marched off to jail. And the poorer the district, the more support the rebels had. Because there's this other part of the story where when the soldiers land... A lot of them are cheered on by the people of Dublin, right? Being like, yay, you're here. Shut these weird troublemakers up, you know? Yeah. Uh, It was a very divided city. In the end, 260 civilians were killed, mostly but not exclusively by the British. 126 UK forces were killed, 17 cops were killed, and 82 Irish rebels were killed in the fighting. How many uh, the Mm -hmm. British... Did you say? 126 plus 17 cops. It's not bad. No, so (laughs) overall, the rebels killed way more British people than the British killed of them. However, the British killed a fuck ton of civilians and more civilians died than anyone else. Yeah. Pretty gruesome strategy. Yeah, absolutely. 
More than 3,500 people were arrested, which, if you remember correctly, is more than the people who participated. Almost all of the people who were arrested, and this does not map to who did the uprising, almost all of who was arrested was young Catholic men. Huh. Because there were just raids and roundups over the following days. Anyone who was suspected of having anything to do with it was rounded up. Ninety people were sentenced to death. Most of them don't end up being executed. Okay. Fourteen or fifteen of them were executed by firing squad, mostly leaders. I'm really annoyed that I run into different numbers everywhere about this because I think people are counting differently. Mm-hmm. Because some people are counting Roger Casement, who's hanged, and some people aren't. And then some people are counting this other guy who I'll talk about in a moment. And some people aren't. James Connolly, the socialist, he's almost dead already, right? He's taken his, these two bullets. Doctors tell him he has only a few days left. And then you have this moment where the soldiers are like, hey, is he, is he well enough to shoot yet? <laughs> and the doctor, like, who I think was a British guy, like, looked and was like, I cannot, no patient is good enough to shoot. <laughs> you know, I wish I should have written the actual quote down, but before he dies naturally of naturally before he dies of bullets that were inflicted several days earlier, before he naturally dies of unnatural causes. Right. A priest comes in and does last rites. And people like to argue about this because people like want to claim James Connolly as an atheist or as a Catholic or blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, because people want to own this man's legacy and can't understand yeah. the complicated fact that he was a socialist who was culturally Catholic and possibly in some ways theologically Catholic, even though he spent a lot of his time talking shit on the church and he believed in materialism. But he did his last rites. The colonial occupying army of Ireland came in, took him out, tied him to a chair and shot him. And he never saw socialist Ireland. Neither has anyone yet. His children kept up the fight for another generation. His last words were in a letter given to his daughter to give to the field general for the British. And it was a compl- it, it starts off with a complaint about how the prisoners are treated because he's an activist wow. to the end. Yeah, right? right to the bitter end, yeah. Yeah. And then he talks about how, you know, England has no rights to Ireland. And then the last line is, I personally thank God that I have lived to see the day when thousands of Irish men and boys and hundreds of Irish women and girls were ready to affirm that truth that England had no rights to Ireland and to attest it with their lives if need be. That really doesn't sound like a sentence an atheist would write, but... No, I... Yeah, I... Yeah, exactly. Patrick Pierce wrote a farewell letter to his mother, which, which is... And it included the line, This is the death I should have asked if God had given me the choice of all deaths, to die a soldier's death for Ireland and for freedom. Mm-hmm. We have done right. People will say hard things of us now, but later on will praise us. And that is fucking true. It is true. And I mean, that is the crux of what I was saying before. Yeah. You know, it's like I'd rather die a martyr, die fighting for what we believe in for our country. Yeah. My goal is to be the cat lady who lives to be 90, but, but not by having not stood up when standing up right. needed happening. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Willie Pierce, Patrick's brother, hadn't been a leader and hadn't killed anyone in, in all of it. He'd been in the fighting, right? But he was like rank and file. Uh, they killed him too because of his last name. Oh. One man, Thomas Kent, 
He hadn't come out to the Rising because of the order to stay home. But he and his, like, he was from a, like, strong, we fucking hate the English family, Mm -hmm. right? And so when they they show up to try and arrest all the usual suspects, they show up to his house and are going to arrest him. And he and his three brothers uh, resisted arrest and killed a cop in the process. He was executed. And he's part of the reason that the count is kind of messed up between yeah. different, different takes. Yeah. He wasn't even a part of it, technically. Right. He probably would have been. He absolutely would have been, yeah. But he was told to stay home, and he did what he was told to do. Man, that also sucks, too. If I was somebody that was committed, mm-hmm. and then I got the other, and then I missed the memos somehow, and I yeah. stayed home, I, that would be a bitter pill to swallow for sure. Absolutely. I'd pro- maybe I would go fuck up a cop, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. Especially if they came to arrest me for the yeah, thing I like, didn't even get to do. dare you? Oh, yeah. you want to see me fight? I'll fight. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you something to write about. Mm-hmm. 99 years after he was executed, his remains were exhumed from the prison where he'd been buried and were reburied in a state funeral. Mm. Joseph Mary Plunkett, he was the, the tuberculosis guy with a wound on his neck. Yeah. Who, you know, he was rich. He let his family use the... Um, let the people use the land yeah and you know he almost died just of TB but he was sentenced to death his fiancee Grace Gifford who is sisters to uh, crap some of the other people that I've talked about I can't remember right now I think Kathleen Lynn the the doctor okay so his fiancee had just converted to Catholicism in order to marry him and when she heard about her fiance's execution date, she went out and she bought a ring and she found a priest and she showed up at the jail and was like, you're going to let me fucking marry this man. Let me marry this tuberculosis man. Yeah, before you fucking kill him. A few hours before his execution, they have a ceremony in the jail cell and the guards give, him, give them like 10 minutes together after the wedding to like talk. Like not even... Fuck. Consummate that marriage. Yeah. They would interrupt every minute to be like, nine minutes now, eight minutes now. Romantic. Dicks. She went on to become a politician for Free Ireland. There's also this whole thing where like her, his family tried to cut her out of the will because his will was like, I leave it all to my widow. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, there weren't enough witnesses for the marriage to count or whatever the fuck. Did they win? Uh... She won some money 12 years later, or like in like 1931. It's like 15 years later. Awful. Yeah. And there's another guy. His name's Tom Clark. He was of the older generation of revolutionaries. He had been part of that get some bombs and go to London and see what happens plan from the 1880s. So he had been a, he was a a revolutionist from, you know, 30 years earlier. And he was like, well, it's the best thing going. He had spent 15 years in prison for, for his I mean, first terrorism. And he went to the U.S. He came back. He opened a tobacco shop. He supported unions, and he wouldn't sell newspapers that were owned by union busters. He also supported women's rights. And he was 58 when he was executed for his role in the Rising. Hmm. His last words were conveyed through his wife, and they were, My comrades and I believe we have struck the first successful blow for freedom, and so sure as we are going out this morning, and so sure will freedom come as a direct result of our action. In this belief, we die happy. He also told his wife to make sure that that asshole coward, Owen McNeil, would be held to account for what he had done, and said, quote, 
He is a weak man, but I know every effort will be made to whitewash him. Oh, and I bet it was. <laughs> yeah, although, I mean, I think overall, I think, I think people really like the rising. And so what happens is people try to take the rising and make it be about what they want it to be about, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I guess mostly, I mean, in the immediate aftermath, the confusion of what the narrative is, but ultimately, no, it's a very... Clearly, yeah. he he messed up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like impossible to know what would have happened if several different things had gone differently. Yeah. Um, but one thing that is as certain as the fact that we will each one day die is that this podcast will be interrupted by advertisers who's mm-hmm. all have very different volumes because they speak in a very... Yeah maximized yeah. volume way to get your yeah. attention yeah. and try to convince you to do things that you shouldn't yeah. do that you should totally do with your life we love our ads you're listening to this podcast so i know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now specifically when it comes to the situation in israel and gaza right now you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide massacre and occupation but these words slogans and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there and that's where this podcast comes in check out unpacking israeli history catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in israel today From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we're back. We're back. Yes. Okay, now I'm going to tell you about this person, and you're going to understand why she's my favorite of all of Margaret's them. Margaret's got a lovely smile on her face. Oh, yeah. She's excited. Yeah. Well, I hadn't yet told you about the lesbian bomber lady who was a sniper. Okay. Saving the best for last, I see. Magpie's like, he, he, Or he, close he, to he, last. He, he, yeah. He. She survived, so I went through the people who died first. Yeah, fair. And her name was Margaret Skinneter. Okay. Skinneter? Yeah. Okay. Margaret Skinneter was born to Irish parents in Scotland, and she became a school teacher. She later joined the Kuminavon branch in Glasgow in Scotland, and she was a crack shot with a rifle, and she spent her free time in Ireland smuggling detonators in her hat and testing dynamite with the girls in the hills around the city. Okay. And I think spent time blowing up British soldiers and shit in Dublin when she got bored. Like, I think she was dynamiting British positions before the Rising. Amazing. Amazing. She dressed like a boy during the Rising to run messages when she wasn't busy sniping or scouting, and she had four men under her command. Um, She was almost certainly gay. There's a lot of, like, you know, she wasn't like, hello, I am a lesbian. Said she was like, hello, I'm clearly a lesbian and live with the following woman. Yeah, yeah. You know? She was also a socialist, and she was shot three times during the Rising while trying to burn down some houses to stop the retreating army. Like, the British were, like, trying to, like, run through some houses, so she's like, fuck it, set fire to them. Got shot three times for it. She survived. She wrote an autobiography, which I haven't read yet, but it has the sick and humble title, Doing My Bit for Ireland. Yeah. (laughs) And then, at the very end of it, She's going to do one of the most cool people who did cool stuff things of all. No, she doesn't represent herself in court. She does the other thing. <gasps> she fucking breaks out of custody. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> She's in the hospital, right? Because she got shot a whole lot of times. Is there a tunnel? Is there a tunnel? No. Okay. Okay. There was a tunnel and I didn't have a way to put it in because I wasn't as certain about it because yeah. I've read both that it happened and that it almost happened. Earlier, there was a part where I think Pierce and all the others, not Pierce, um, the people at the post office, they had to escape. So they started digging an escape tunnel. Yeah. Amazing. But I'm not certain whether or not they succeeded at it. So there was a tunnel and she breaks out of custody. She's at the hospital and she just like gets out past the guards and gets the fuck to Scotland. She's like, Fuck Ireland. They underestimated that woman. Absolutely. They're like, this lady got shot three times. She's not going anywhere. Plus, she's a lady. And she was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. After the war, she did union organizing and school teaching. She went back to school teaching, and she fought for women's rights. And she's fucking cool as hell. She's a top-tier Margaret. Then there's this leader, the half-Spanish, half-Irish man born in the U.S. named Eamon de Valera. He's the one I mentioned that mm-hmm. wouldn't give orders to women. Mm-hmm. He wasn't executed because of his American citizenship. He was absolutely one of the leaders of the Rising. The British were trying to get the U.S. to enter the war. And so killing an American wasn't like going to do them any good, right? He becomes the third president of Ireland later. Oh. He also does this interesting shit. He is the leader of the, well, we'll talk about what happens after the, we'll, talk, we'll get to that. Anyway, along the way, later, he becomes hella conservative, or he was always hella conservative, depending on who you ask. He's like one of the most strongly Catholic of all of the people. Um, 
1937, he was the person who abolished the oath of allegiance to the crown. So, oh, good for him, I guess. There, yeah. Yeah. The countess, she'd been one of the main leaders of the whole thing, and she may or may not have killed between one and three people, between zero and three. She was sentenced to death, but they commuted it to life in prison on literal account of like, but you're a lady, though. (gasps) Okay. They were like, we can't kill you. You're a girl. Well. She had a quote in response to this. I do wish your lot had the decency to shoot me. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's worse just to be in prison the rest of your life. Yeah. Far less ladylike. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned by reading history that does not map to any current understanding in American politics is that one of the best ways to not be in prison for a long time is for the movement that you're a part of to keep fighting really fucking hard. Mm -hmm. Because often throughout history, different governments have been like, maybe if we let their prisoners go, they'll stop blowing things up. Right, right. So none of the Easter Rising arrestees are going to spend an incredibly long time in jail. Okay. Because Ireland successfully wins a war of independence early. Well, we'll talk. Anyway, she goes on to become the first woman elected to the House of Commons, like I was saying, right? And then, but she refused to take the role. And then later, she becomes the Minister of Labor for a Free Ireland as Ireland's first woman minister and Europe's second woman minister. Wow. But Revolutionary Ireland was a lot more progressive than after the Revolution Ireland, and it wasn't until 1979 that Ireland gets another woman minister. The rising itself was of mixed popularity with the Irish people, but the executions were really, really unpopular. They do not get through the 90. The rest of the executions are commuted out of fear of pissing people off even more, except for Roger Casement, because his trial was separate. And the other thing that happened, I think I mentioned this before, but during his trial, he kept all these like careful, he had this like journal. He kept a very careful journal of all his travels around the world. And he kept a secret other journal of all the dudes he fucked. Oh, and he was a total size queen, and interesting. So it was like this is how big this dude's dick was. Total size queen. Yeah, the British pulled out the "I fuck dudes" journal. It's called the Black Journal or something, and to try and turn Catholic Ireland against him, and it's moderately successful. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are like, "No, it's a lie," and then like later journalists were like, "It's not a lie. Y'all are homophobes." Yeah. Oh, so he gets hanged is the end of his life. But he lived an amazing fucking life. Almost 2,000 of the arrestees are taken to a concentration camp in England and Wales where they basically, and I I feel like I have to bring it up every time I say it on the show, concentration camps start to mean a different thing after World War II. It's still not Mm -hmm. good, but it means take all of the people of the following type and put them in one place. Um, The the Japanese internment camps were 100% concentration camps. Yeah. So they get together and plot a rebellion while they're in this fucking thing, right? The Irish War of Independence kicks off in 1919, only three years later. England sues for peace. The treaty offer comes, and it's like, you still got to swear allegiance to the crowd. And so this time when, they, when the War of Independence had kicked off, they had made their own government. They would made the Dal Aaron, the, yeah. the Irish government, whatever. And a ton of women were in this first Dal, like just a ton of them. And a lot of them were leaders of the rising or widows or mothers of people who had died in the rising. Yeah. And so it was basically like a thing that we see over and over again in history is all of the men sort of like run to the front and get killed and then the women do the work. 
<laughs> the men are great. They did amazing work. But so the women keep it up. Every single one of the women in the doll voted against the treaty with England that ended the war by making Ireland subservient to England again. Hmm. So if Ireland had listened to women, the civil war would have been averted. However, they would have had to resume war with the English probably. Who fucking knows how that would go? Yeah. And that civil war, the like leader of the pro-treaty side was Guy Michael Collins who was in the rising, but he has enough of a hagiography already and I, I don't like him. My, my okay. uncle didn't like him, so I didn't include him. Oh, yeah. That's a longstanding family grudge. Leave him out. Yeah. The guy who led the other side was uh, Eamon de Valera. Okay. The guy who wouldn't give orders to women and- Yeah. Became you know, eventually president. Right. So that's like another part of his complicated legacy is like, well, yeah. you know, the Irish Civil War can't be mapped neatly left and right because you have a lot of the conservatives and a lot of the more radical folks on the side against the mm-hmm. treaty. Whereas it's more of the like centrists and like middle of the road people who are like, fuck it, I just want the fighting to be done. I mean, tale as old as time. Yeah. And we, we have no idea how it would have gone if they had turned down the treaty. Yeah. It's possible that they would have won full independence. It's possible they would have been completely subservient. Who fucking knows? Yeah. How we talk about historical events always shifts. And one of the ways that people talk about the Easter Rising is fascinating to me. It's probably wrong, but it's fascinating because it is both the most pagan and Catholic thing ever, and therefore it is the most Irish thing ever. People call it a blood sacrifice. And the, the idea is that the rebels knew that they would lose and that their ideas weren't even popular, but that they spilled their blood for their country, it would spur others to fight and would lead to freedom. But I buy the argument that this isn't true because they planned the whole thing. They tried to win. They didn't go out to try to die. Right. They were willing to die and they accepted blood sacrifice as a thing that was okay but it wasn't their plan. Ireland today does not reflect what they fought for, either side of the nationalist or the socialist side. I did even more reading about Pierce in the intervening couple of days. And, well, not since you all heard this on Monday, but since last week's episodes. Since we last met. Yeah, exactly. The people who matter, unlike those listeners. Uh-huh, who I, sure. Yeah. Are they even real? Except for the ones clicking on sponsors' links. Oh, yeah. They matter. Totally. Yeah. So he was, you know, more democratic and egalitarian in his nationalism than I had initially assumed. And he would have been against, and I, I, I read this from a, I think this was Kieran Allen's position and from the book 1916, and I tend to resonate with it. He would have been against that Ireland doesn't own its own natural resources. They're sold cheaply to international corporations. Mm. Connolly, of course, the socialist, said exactly what would happen. If you don't get rid of capitalism, you don't get rid of colonialism. He had that whole quote, if you raise a green flag over Dublin, it's not going to change anything unless you get rid of the landlords. Right. But what it did set up, I'm going to quote Kieran Allen from that book, 1916. Easter Rising gave birth to a quote, revolutionary tradition that has passed like a thread through subsequent decades. Sometimes this tradition has moved masses of people, while at other times it has been confined to the margins. Was it for this that the men of 1916 died is one of the most common sayings of the modern rabble-rouser. Official Ireland tries to deal with this subterranean revolutionary tradition by canonizing and mummifying the leaders of 1916. Train stations, schools, and hospitals are called after them. 
But even while their sacrifices are acknowledged, their actual ideas are gutted of anything resembling a revolutionary hmm. thought. Interesting. Yeah. And one of the things that's really interesting to me, too, is the rebels weren't just fighting for Ireland. They positioned what they were doing in the context of the British Empire. Connolly wrote extensively about Britain's colonialism in India. And in 1914, he wrote about his desire to fight this way. Quote, Starting thus, Ireland may yet set the torch to a European conflagration that will not burn out until the last throne and last capitalism bond and debenture will be shriveled on the funeral pyre of the last warlord. And you know it's a good poetic quote when I have to look up a word. Debenture is just like some like <laughs> a, a loan you owe. Okay, thank you. I did not know that. I love yeah. that. You had to look up Deventure. a word. That's your mark. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about that martyry, the thing about the the deaths mm-hmm. of the rebels. I mean, that is just such a big part of Irish culture in general. All the people throughout the all the yeah. different rebellions and risings and uh, that they hold this mythical status yeah. in Irish society and to this day everywhere, of course, it's, you know, especially in Belfast and different parts mm-hmm. of the country, you know. But yeah, that's baked into what it feels to be Irish. And when you're in Ireland, it's it's everywhere. Yeah. I don't know. It's not really a point. It's just, you know, thinking about all of this history and this fight that has continued and, you know, and how many people have died fighting for this. And yeah, the way that the message and the realities get mutated and the yeah. outcome for the people you know, from the very beginning would probably not be very thrilled. <laughs> totally. You know, I would it is. absolutely love to have a beer with the Countess and oh, Pierce yeah. and Connolly and the, uh, I forget her name, the lesbian bomber sniper, Margaret Skinner. I would love to hear what they think about all of yeah. this. And I mean, some of them lived long enough that they did get to write about it. And so some of it we can go and read right because like that's the other problem is we'll boil it down to pierce and connelly who are great and i don't want to take anything away from them you know well great is not whatever they're they did an amazing and interesting thing you know we don't have to agree with everything that they said or or believed but yeah but we don't i don't want to take anything away from what they did they are figureheads of this, of these movements, you know, and then there's many, many other people involved in these movements. And I like the method. I mean, I think it shows on the show where instead of taking away from the the people who get put up as figureheads is also elevating other people mm-hmm. and being like, let's add to the roster of our heroes. Absolutely. You know? Adding the context and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So Within a few years, Ireland fought a war of independence. It did not shatter the British Empire, but it showed that it could be beaten. And it also showed how to beat it. Guerrilla warfare. The Irish didn't invent using guerrilla tactics against the British. They themselves were heavily inspired by the Boers of South Africa. But they in turn influenced others, including the rebellious movements in Myanmar, India, and Egypt. Mm -hmm. And that's part of their legacy, too. Yeah. And that's the story of the Easter Rising. It's a wonderful story, Margaret. Thanks. That was a lot of research you did. Yeah. This was one of those, um, sometimes I have 
lots of days in a row where I wake up and work and then do that until I go to sleep again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's fascinating. I mean, but yeah, it's so complicated. I've learned a lot and I don't know, it's interesting, especially that, yeah, the inspiration for other uprisings, other, you know, movements around the world too. You you forget that. Yeah. Or I don't know it, didn't know it, makes sense. <laughs> well, it's partly because like, I love Irish history, clearly. It shows in my yeah. choice of subjects. I also love it because of my family connection, but I also love it on its own. But there is this problem where white Americans are like, oh, look, the good white people, the Irish, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so we can be like, ah, yes, the Irish, they overthrew England, and that's all that matters, you know? And I don't know shit about the Egyptian independence movement yet. Not yet. You know? And like... I know a little bit about the Indian independence movement. Actually, until two weeks ago, I knew more about it than I knew about the Irish one. But I still don't know enough. I don't know enough that I couldn't just do a yeah. show on it without doing a fuck ton more research, yeah. you know? And we mythologize. I actually wrote about this in my Substack. Oh, here's my like little plug. Oh, good I plug. Wrote a, I wrote a Substack article. <laughs> it'll be a couple weeks ago by the time you're listening to this about the rising. And it covers the rising, but it also talks about the way that we mythologize and the way that I've mythologized Irish rebels and all of that. And it's complicated. It's it's a, you know, we want simple black and white heroes. And then you're like, yeah, they kidnapped their friend and then spread lies in order to get people who didn't know that yeah, they were about to fight an up. uprising to go do an uprising, you know? And they got everyone killed. And yes, the British did the shelling. Any rational understanding of British tactics would have been like, the English are going to show up here and shell. They're just going right. to blow shit up, you know? But it's important to acknowledge all of it. We have a tendency, yes, to want to put our heroes up or the people that are fighting for the thing that we believe in. We want to put them on a pedestal. We do it with presidents all the time. Yeah. But the reality is, is we need to stop doing that in the sense that they're human beings and complicated and messy and that a lot of choices fall into a very moral gray area, regardless yeah. of your goal, how pure your goal is, how do you get there? You know, but we have to be able, we have to be able to think about things honestly like yeah. that. No, totally. And actually it's funny you point out like, and I'm like, I was, as you're saying that, I was like, oh, there's not a single American president that I like, but then I'm like, then why am I talking about these people who are like, yeah, this guy was cool. He did this thing. And then he became the president for a really long time. And he was a little conservative. And it was like part of the, English, the Irish theocracy yeah. that, and then I'm like, oh, so in my mind, be, being a politician is an example of this moral gray area yep. of people like drifting away from the, you know, the Easter rising was like the pure rising, right? Whereas the war of independence and especially the civil war were messy. And yeah. there's not a good guy in the English, mm -hmm. in, the, in the Irish Civil War, even though I have a side that I am sympathetic to, right? The, the anti-treaty side, the more freedom side, I'm sympathetic to it. Am I so sympathetic to it that I think it would be okay for me to kill the person I just fought a, a war of independence with? I don't think so. But what right. if that person is now trying to kill me because I'm saying that we shouldn't swear an oath of allegiance to the king? You know, and... You can see how this wound is left by colonialism. You can yeah. see how the Irish versus Irish fight continues to this day mm -hmm. because of this. And that is why 
Star Trek said that 2024 <laughs> is the year of Irish unification, and Sinn Féin is currently... I don't actually right. think they're going to pull this off, but Sinn Féin is currently f- uh, coming into power in, in Northern Ireland. And so there's like, again, this is at the meme level. As it was writ, so yeah. it shall be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Katie, you got anything you want to plug for us? Oh, sure. Why not? I have a show with Cody Johnston called Somewhere News. You can watch the YouTube channel on Wednesdays or you can listen to it as a podcast. Speaking of podcasts, we also have a podcast called Even More News, which we co-host. And that's every week. And uh, that's 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 it. That's what I'm plugging. That's what I. Yep. Get your news from it instead of Twitter and you will be a happier person. Yeah. I already accidentally plugged my Substack. I have a book out again. It's the one that you, I told you about the Kickstarter for last year. One of the ones I told you about a Kickstarter for last year. I have a tabletop role-playing game called Penumbra City. If you want to be a revolutionist blowing up various god kings <laughs> in a vaguely actually really kind of set around 1916, but in a fantasy world, you can do it by playing Penumbra City with your friends. Or you can do what I did as a kid and not have any friends and buy role-playing game books and read them and imagine playing them and have yet almost as mu- not nearly as much enjoyment, but some enjoyment out of it. <laughs> and it's available for sale now because it's finally out. It came out on February 2nd, and you can get it. Um, uh, its distribution is not fully in place yet, but you can get it. So you can't go to like your game store yet, it yet. but you can go to tanglewilderness.org, or you can just type in Penumbra City because there's not too many things named that, and one of them is my book. Uh, if people requested at their local game stores, would that help? So at some point, I'm going to tell people to start doing that thing. Okay. Once we get the distribution network yeah. in place we've been so focused on getting this we kickstarted this book and so we were like we're gonna do so many things and then we yeah. had to do all those things it's, and now we're like yeah. we tried to get it out to the backers as soon as possible yeah. so now we're setting up the dis- got it the answer is eventually <laughs> eventually folks eventually you'll be called into action yeah sophie what do you got uh, we at Cool Zone Media have a new weekly podcast it is called yes. Better Offline it is hosted by Ed Zitron, and it is a weekly show exploring the tech industry's influence and manipulation of society. Uh, as of today's episode, the uh, trailer should be out, and episode one drops on February 21st. Check it out. Ooh, I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. Sounds depressing. <laughs> yeah, and Ed, Ed, is, Ed, is, Ed is wickedly talented. He's yeah, just an amazing tech journalist, so very excited about that one. All right. We did it. I will see you all next week. Bye. 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 Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? 
Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.